I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, David Kurtzer, is a professor of social science, anthropology, and Italian studies at Brown University, and is the author of 13 books. The Pope and Mussolini, The Secret History of Pius XI and the Rise of Fascism in Europe, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015, and the American Historical Association Prize for Best Book in Italian History. The Kidnapping of Ed Edgardo Mortara was a National Book Award finalist in 1997, and will be or is supposed to be adapted for film by Steven Spielberg with a screenplay by Tony Kushner. His latest book published this year is The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini and Hitler, which is the subject of today's interview. So first off, congratulations, David, on your many, many accomplishments and your outstanding literary career. I noticed that the reviews for The Pope at War are, are already calling it the most definitive treatment of its subject to date and are commending it, uh, I think, either commending or implying a commendation for its understated, straightforward style, letting the facts speak for themselves to the extent possible. Well, thanks. Uh, yes, it's been gratifying. The Vatican hasn't necessarily been terribly happy with the book, but... Uh, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> many of the reviews have been uh, very supportive, which is great. So uh, from your introduction, you write, what follows is the story, sometimes shocking and often surprising, of a pope facing a world torn by war, fearing for the future of the church he led and under unrelenting pressure to denounce the evildoers. If the events recounted here offer a dramatic chapter in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, they are much more than that. They form an important and until now only partially understood chapter in the history of the Second World War itself. Perhaps too, it is a story that offers lessons for our own world today. Could you give us some personal context? How did you become interested in Italian World War II history and what were the family connections? Yeah, so there's both a kind of um, family genealogy to my interest as well as a kind of professional genealogy. Uh, from a family point of view, I heard stories from the time I was little about World War II in Italy and Rome in particular because my father was a rabbi and he was a Jewish chaplain in the U.S. Army. Uh, with the troops that landed at Anzio to try to liberate Rome. Anzio was a beachhead about 30 miles south of Rome, uh, where Allied troops landed in January 1944. So he was there with the troops, uh, conducting Jewish services, visiting the injured Jewish uh, soldiers, presiding over Jewish funerals in the cemetery there as they were under uh, German bombardment. And he was also with the troops when in early uh, June 1944, they liberated Rome. And then uh, a few days after that liberation, he co-conducted with the chief rabbi of Rome, the first services in a liberated um, synagogue from occupied Europe. I grew up with these stories and uh, became interested in Italy. And then as I uh, became an anthropologist, interested in politics and religion, back quite a few years ago at the time the uh, Italian Communist Party was strong and I became fascinated with Italy because it had, of course, the Vatican, the home of the church uh, worldwide, but also was had the strongest Communist Party outside the Communist world. So I initially went there as a graduate student to Italy, to Bologna, and spent a year living in this working class quartiere neighborhood looking at the battle between the Catholic Church and the Communist Party for the allegiance of people. And so I followed the question of politics and religion in Italy ever since. And of course, when you're talking about politics and religion in Italy, you're talking about the Vatican. 
And then your your family uh, took in a foster child from the Holocaust as well, right? Yes, that's another element, I guess, in my personal history in relationship to the war that uh, the year before I was born, uh, this is now, I was born in 48, so in 47, uh, my parents took in a sole survivor, a uh, teenage sole survivor of the Holocaust, Eva, who uh, was Hungarian, whose parents and uh, siblings were all murdered at Auschwitz. She somehow survived the concentration camp and uh, was taken in by my family who couldn't adopt her because there was no record of her parents' death, of course, no official record. So I grew up, not only had my father just returned a couple of years earlier from the, the army in World War II, but uh, also this new uh, sister that I had who had uh, suffered so much. Yeah, that's a quite a direct kind of connection. And uh, the article uh, about you in the Times uh, mentioned that when newsreels would come on about the Holocaust on TV, that uh, you and I guess your siblings would turn it off, you know, to, to protect her, her psyche. In fact, it's still difficult for me to watch films, for example, about the Holocaust that uh, it just uh, cuts too close. And yes, we were, of course, when we were little, uh, very nervous about what impact seeing sites like that of German soldiers and so on would have on our foster sisters. So uh, yeah, there is an emotional impact there for me as well. So let's move on now to talk about the historical context of your current book, The Pope at War. Uh, in 2019, the Vatican opened its World War II records after, I guess, bending to, to a certain amount of pressure over many years. And what what was the context uh, for you in terms of the additional information? You had already written a book about the Pope and uh, the previous Pope and Mussolini. What what were the implications of this opening of the archives? Right. Well, there had been pressure for really fifty years for the Vatican to open its World War II archives. There had been a play by a German playwright, uh, Ralph Hachuth, in 1963 called The Deputy, which was performed worldwide, although not in Italy because the Vatican prevented it from being performed there, which brought up the question of the so-called silence of the Pope, the failure of the Pope ever to criticize the Nazis uh, for their attempt to exterminate the Jews of Europe. Then more recently, I think about a little over 20 years ago, there was a book called Hitler's Pope, which became a bestseller by John Cornwell, which uh, dealt with the same issue. And all this led to pressure by Jewish organizations, but uh, by others as well on the Vatican to open the archives, since at the same time, the position of the kind of official church was that the Pope, in fact, was a heroic figure who did everything possible to save Jews and, and so forth. And as you mentioned, I had done this previous book on the 1920s and 30s, the predecessor to Pius XII, Pius XI, uh, and his relationship with the fascist regime in Italy. And in the last 10 years, more or less, of his papacy, last decade, uh, his number two was Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, and it was Pacelli who would succeed him and become uh, Pius XII. So I had all these connections. And when uh, these, these archives were still closed. It's up to the current Pope to open the archives of the next papacy whose archives haven't yet been opened. And this was the next one yet to be opened. When Francis became Pope, I kind of made a bet that he would, uh, before too long, open those archives. So I began working actually on this project uh, a number of years before, working in the archives that were open. So that, for example, the fascist archives, the state archives in Italy, the German uh, diplomatic archives, the French, the British, the American uh, military and diplomatic archives, these were all open for World War II. And each of these countries had an ambassador or an envoy 
to the Vatican, who was reporting on more or less a daily basis back to their governments, uh, whether in London, in Washington, in, in Berlin, in Rome, or in Paris or Vichy, uh, on what was going on, what the men around the Pope were telling them each day, what the Pope himself was telling them when they met with him occasionally. And so I already had tens of thousands of pages of archival documents digitized from these other archives when the Pope uh, announced and then made available. So the announcement he made was, as you mentioned, was 2019, but the actual opening was uh, March 2nd, 2020. That was the first day that these archives at the Vatican were open to researchers. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that Pope Francis has done. It's another sign of his uh, liberal tendencies, I guess you could say, because it, it, it really is a dangerous move. Of course, it's dangerous to keep it hidden too, because people just assume that it's hidden for a reason. And of course, the, the apologetics have started already, but still, it's it's a remarkable thing, I, I would think, you know, to open those archives. Well, it does um, kind of comport with his attempt at greater transparency, as he puts it in the Vatican. Uh, but it is, I think you're right, it is a tricky issue for him because, first of all, popes don't like to do anything critical of their predecessors. You're not going to hear a pope criticizing a pre predecessor pope. But also because Pius XII is the big hero of his own enemies in the, within the church, uh, that is the right wing of the church. Pius XII was the last pope before the Second Vatican Council. And that's where, from the point of view of the right wing of the church, the church went wrong. And so even in the kind of more extreme cases, you see a number of uh, right-wing Catholics who say Pius XII was the last legitimate pope. <laughs> there hasn't been a, a real pope since then. Uh, so for Francis, this is a, a kind of a difficult issue. Yeah, so you mentioned um, the Second Council of uh, the Vatican, uh, Vatican II. So this is, I think, a good moment to ask you about some further uh, historical context that I imagine that many of us here in the U.S. look upon the papacy as the leadership for Catholics in a purely uh, spiritual realm without the kind of physical power, if you will, that's wielded by nation states. But, but of course, this, this is not always the case. So, so could you give us a little background? And this goes beyond the background that you give in this particular book. But I think it's really important uh, for listeners and anyone reading your book uh, to take into account. Well, I think there are different aspects. There's one certainly is that for a thousand years, the popes were also pope kings uh, because, they, as they were called, because they also ruled over a temporal government, namely the papal states, uh, which occupied a rather large swath of the Italian peninsula from uh, south of Rome up through Bologna. So they ran the government. The government consisted largely of priests and uh, the courts were, the judges were priests and so forth. It was only in the mid 19th century, actually the second half of the 19th century that the papal states would fall progressively between 1859 and then 1870, only in 1870 did Rome fall. But until 1870, uh, Rome was ruled by the Pope as the Pope King ruling over the papal states. Uh, and Jews, for example, were ghettoized by the popes, and the popes uh, dictated all the rest of the laws based on their understanding of you know, church doctrine. So this is the background in which uh, you know, World War II occurs less than a century after the end of the uh, papal rule in Rome, for example, if we're going to look at Rome, uh, and the whole uh, the Vatican, the notion of the Vatican and Vatican State, uh, Vatican City is all a, a kind of recent uh, development. In fact, Vatican City as a sovereign entity only exists as of 1929 when Mussolini made a deal with the Pope at the time, uh, Pius XI, and created Vatican City. 
So let's talk now about Pius Eleventh. There's a you know, tremendous uh, contrast between in the style and substance and moral substance, I, I would even say, between Pope Pius the Eleventh and Pope Pius the Twelfth. Uh, so what, what is the contrast between the two and how does it interweave with the main themes of your book? Well, they were extremely different personalities, uh, even though they worked together. Of course, it was Pius XI who appointed uh, Eugenio Pacelli first to be cardinal and then uh, to be his number two as secretary of state. Uh, and also, despite their differences, uh, Pius XI would tell a number of people that he saw Cardinal Pacelli as his uh, most worthy successor. That said, they were very different. They were very different in background. They're both Italian, but the first, Pius XI, who was pope from 1922 to 1939, uh, was from a, you might say, middle-class family, merchant family in uh, northern Italy. And Pius XII came from a what's called the black aristocracy. That is the elites in Rome who were close to the popes for generations. And in fact, Pacelli's grandfather was so close to Pope Pius IX back in the uh, in 1848 that when revolutionaries drove him into exile, these are part of the revolutions in Europe of 1848, uh, when the pope was driven into exile, Eugenio Pacelli's grandfather went with him, then came back when he was able to, thanks to the French army, <laughs> restore papal power to Rome and uh, help found the first Vatican newspaper, the Servitore Romano. Uh, Pacelli's father was a, a senior a lawyer for the Vatican. So he came from a, a kind of elite, uh, very Catholic, of course, uh, background, and was also a very different personality. The Pius XI was known as the mountaineer pope. He was kind of this uh, robust figure who, in fact, uh, was able to boast of climbing 100 mountain peaks in uh, the Alps as, as a younger priest. And he was also someone who could lose his temper when he got angry at, for example, a foreign diplomat whose country had done something to anger him. He would pound on the, on the table and yell at him. <laughs> something that his successor, Pius XII, who is the consummate diplomat, would never do. Uh, Pius XII, first of all, he never served in a pastoral position. So he was never a parish priest. He was never bishop of a diocese. Uh, he immediately, as a young priest coming from this elite uh, Catholic background, entered the service of the Secretary of State of the Vatican. And then in 1917 was uh, sent to Germany as a papal nuncio or ambassador in Germany, where he remained for 12 years. So he had a link to Germany that's uh, very important to understand as well, uh, very close to the uh, Catholic elite conservatives in, in Germany. And he was fluent in German, something he was quite proud of. So these were very different kind of people. So another big point, I think, in, in the contrast is that uh, you write that Mussolini learned late in 1938 that Pope Pius XI was secretly working on an encyclical, a declaration aimed at Catholics worldwide denouncing racism and anti-Semitism. And he died, what, the day before he was supposed to deliver that speech and uh, or, or deliver that denunciation? And, and, you know, there's all kinds of speculation about what, what that would have meant if he had delivered it. And then, of course, it's, it's rife with... Uh, conspiracy theories about, you know, well, why did he die? How did he die? What, what happened? Uh, it's really quite a dramatic turn, you know, that just on the eve of that, uh, that event, that he should die and that Pope Pius XII should take over. 
Yes, when I was describing my book project a number of years ago, with uh, sitting at dinner in Rome with a uh, Italian uh, woman, she, I told her I was uh, working on uh, Pius XI. This is when I was working on that earlier book, and um, she said, "Oh, the Pope who was murdered." <laughs> so uh, there have been these conspiracy theories. There actually were two things that uh, the Pope was involved in Pius XI around the time of his death. And one was this encyclical. He had decided right after Hitler had paid a rather dramatic visit, triumphal visit to fascist Italy in the spring of 1938, uh, something Pius XI was not at all happy about. And uh, after he left, Pius XI decided he wanted to have an encyclical issued denouncing racism and anti-Semitism. Uh, but he didn't trust his own staff, including apparently his own secretary of state, who he kept out of this. And rather surprisingly, and not following the custom of how encyclicals are normally prepared, called on an American Jesuit who was known for his work against racism, anti-Black racism in, in the U.S., to draft an encyclical of the sort. The draft was lying on his desk the day that he died and was never issued. Uh, but there was something else that was going on, which was uh, February 11th, 1939, was going to be the 10th anniversary of the Lateran Accords. That is the agreement I referred to before, uh, made between Mussolini and Pius XI, that ended the separation of church and state in Italy and created Vatican City as a sovereign entity and gave the church uh, various privileges that it had lost in the previous century. And so on that anniversary, there was a big ceremony scheduled to take place at St. Peter's Basilica with the 350 bishops of Italy present, the world's press present, the foreign diplomats of the Vatican all present. And Mussolini learned from his ambassador to the Holy See that uh, what the ambassador told him is that the Pope was planning to denounce his alliance with Hitler at this very public occasion. And so Mussolini was very worried about this. So this was supposed to happen on February 11th. All the bishops, in fact, from Italy had already gathered in Rome when they get the news that the morning of February 10th, the Pope dies. So this uh, timing <laughs> may seem a bit suspicious, even though well, working in the archives, I never found any evidence that anybody uh, was involved in doing the Pope in. He had been sick. He had a weak heart. Uh, so in many ways, it wasn't that surprising. Uh, Pope Pius XI didn't get a chance to release this encyclical. And the next Pope, Pius XII, decided not to uh, do anything similar, but in fact, did something quite the opposite, it sounds like. Well, there were two things. The encyclical, he um, decided essentially to, to bury, and it was never issued. But the Pope had, uh, in giving that address, the one that Mussolini had heard was going to denounce his allegiance uh, with Hitler, his alliance, the Pope, because he was worried he was getting weaker and his voice might not carry, had asked the Vatican printing office to print copies for all the bishops, 350 bishops. Those had been printed. When Mussolini heard about the Pope's death, he actually was happy at the news, uh, but then he called upon his ambassador to the Vatican to meet with the, the person then in charge in the kind of interpapal period, namely Cardinal Pacelli, uh, meet with him and ask him if there existed copies of this speech that the Pope was going to uh, give, and if so, if he could have them destroyed. And uh, Pacelli immediately agreed and ordered the 
uh, Vatican printing office to destroy the 350 copies or more uh, of that uh, planned speech. So that's kind of the, one of the first uh, elements of the new papacy, even though this is now uh, before the election, the conclave would only take place uh, over two weeks later. And uh, there'd also be other signs shortly after he becomes Pope that would lead Mussolini and Hitler to think there was a, a change in mood in the Vatican. And, and Pius XII, being a kind of a Germanophile uh, because of his years spent in Germany, seemed to be under the illusion at the beginning and then somehow against all evidence, continuing the illusion that somehow he could promote harmonious relations between the church and, and Hitler, you know, especially in, in Germany, but also you know, th throughout Europe, that somehow because of his alliance with Mussolini and, and his kind of tolerance in a way of the uh, atrocities that were, were unfolding, that somehow the church would be spared. Well, he was certainly hoping to find a modus vivendi with, uh, with Hitler. And he thought this was a high priority to protect the church in Germany. And then later, of course, as Germany begins to occupy other parts of Europe, uh, including Catholic parts, they had the previous year, there was the Anschluss. They had already taken over Austria by the time the Pope Pius XII came to the papacy. So he was worried about the fate of Catholics in, in initially in the German, in the Third Reich, the expanding Third Reich, and then, of course, later in other lands that would be conquered by the, the Germans. So he did hope that he could come to some kind of understanding. And one of the first things he does when he becomes Pope is he sends an order to the Vatican Daily newspaper, L'Azoratore Romano, telling them to stop the criticisms that they had been publishing of Germany because in the previous months under Pius XI, on an almost daily basis, the Vatican newspaper was denouncing persecution of the Catholic Church in Germany or in Austria. And um, this, the Pope ordered stopped, which Hitler uh, saw as a, a sign of interest in reaching some better understanding. And Pius XII seemed to take the view that if he did conciliatory things for Hitler, that it would be reciprocated somehow. And, and was it to some extent reciprocated? But I mean, it certainly was abrogated continually. And the treatment of the uh, Catholics, you know, especially in Poland, I mean, it was something like half the priests were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. I don't know if they were death camps, but still. Right. Well, uh, there's a lot that could be said here. I mean, one of the perhaps the most dramatic finding that I had in these newly opened Vatican archives, and I was actually worried as I was writing my book that uh, someone else would get this and publish it before my book come out, came out, but somehow they didn't, was the discovery that Hitler, within weeks, maybe five weeks of Pius XII becoming Pope, saw an opening and decided to send a personal secret envoy to enter into secret negotiations with the Pope. And uh, these, the Vatican has basically kept secret for 80 years till now, till my book came out. The other kind of amazing thing as a researcher working in archives uh, is that not only did I discover there were these meetings, but the Pope apparently secretly without the Nazi prince he was involved in these negotiations with, without him knowing, uh, was keeping a German prelate in a adjoining room writing down the text of the discussions that he was having with Hitler's envoy. So we not only know about these meetings, but we actually have the texts of their conversations over the next number of months. That's certainly a part of the book. 
When you talk about the Poland, I think this brings up an important question. When we talk about, when people talk about the silence of the Pope and the Holocaust, uh, I think what often they don't realize is that the whole controversy over the silence of the Pope, uh, Pius XII, began before the Holocaust and began before dealing with Jews in particular, uh, namely with the German invasion of Poland, which was September 1st, 1939, the date normally used to uh, date the beginning of World War II. And from Hitler's point of view, from the German point of view, they wanted to annex the the adjoining part of Poland, so uh, the Western Poland to the Third Reich. And they saw as uh, major obstacles priests, Roman Catholic priests, because they were seen as fonts of Uh, Polish nationalism at the local level in these communities. And so one of the first things they did was round up hundreds of Roman Catholic priests, especially in the western part of Poland, and sent them to concentration camps where some of them did die. And so it was the Polish clergy and the Polish ambassador to the Vatican who were begging the Pope early on, now we're talking, you know, September and so on in 1939, to speak out against these Nazi uh, invasion and Nazi atrocities. And uh, the Pope, uh, for his own reasons, uh, wouldn't do so. Yeah, he seemed to always take the point of view that speaking out could make things worse, and therefore it's better to say nothing. And and that those words actually appear in your book repeatedly. It's you know, better to say nothing. And you know, you, I think your book is more nuanced than John Cornwall's book, which is, has the inflammatory title, Hitler's Pope. You know, which makes it sound like he was, you know, just actually motivated to do Hitler's bidding. But I, I think your book treats treats him as more of a passive participant, of more of allowing things to happen rather than necessarily wanting to pr- uh, promote them. Right. I think Hitler's Pope. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe you haven't talked to John Cornwell about this. It may have just been purposely kind of inflammatory to start the discussions going. But it's certainly misleading, also, because uh, it wasn't that. He- Pius XII liked Hitler or was fond of Nazism. He certainly wasn't. Um, he would have seen Nazism and Hitler as basically pagan and also as enemies of the Catholic Church in many ways. As an organization that had been doing everything possible, it seemed to the Pope to uh, see the influence of the Catholic Church in Germany, Austria, and other occupied lands uh, diminish. But he was intimidated by Hitler, just as he was intimidated by Mussolini. And I think this is uh, more the, the through thread, you might say, in understanding his silence. Yeah, and this is despite tremendous encouragement to speak out from uh, diplomats, world leaders, priests, cardinals, newspapers, rabbis. I mean, and, and your book just documents, I think, probably hundreds of, of people, high-ranking people, trying to persuade him to speak out. And his point of view always is, you know, better to stay passive. And and also in your book, you, I think, document that, that one of the excuses made is is almost like a modern idea of separation of church and state, that he had to sort of stay above politics and just ally himself with whatever power is in power. And, you know, he's there to save souls. He's there to save souls, not bodies. <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly part of it. I think the other part is looking at what he was facing, especially once the war begins. And in the early years of the war, it, there was good reason to believe that Hitler was going to win the war. And so from the Pope's point of view, he had a responsibility to protect the church, uh, potentially in a Europe that would be under the thumb of Hitler and his pal Mussolini. 
And so to offend them uh, would risk you know, bad consequences for the church. Later in the war, there's something else that another fear that he had, namely communism, because now with, say, 1943, uh, tide of the war has changed. Now it looks more likely like that the Allies will win the war. And here among his concerns were, you know, who were the Allies? The Allies wasn't just the Brits and the Americans. It was also the Soviet Union. And so now he was worried that the uh, total defeat of Germany would mean a, a Soviet Union communism sweeping through Europe and uh, between the Red Army and uprisings by communists who had been identified um, as part of the anti-fascist cause and therefore not compromised by uh, their alliance with Hitler, uh, Mussolini, and so on, that this uh, would all prove disastrous for the church. So th these kind of political considerations are very much on his mind as well. And, and he seemed to think that the communists were a decisively worse threat than, than the Nazis, even though the Nazis were pagan and clearly had no feeling for Catholicism or Christianity, yet he somehow saw the Soviets as a bigger threat. Yes, well, you know, the Germans, um, Germans presided over a society which still had churches people went to on Sunday, and in fact, uh, proclaimed itself as a protector of Christian Europe against the what they portrayed as the two main enem enemies of European civilization, namely the communists and the Jews. So um, it was a different situation. So again, it wasn't that the Pope uh, thought well of the Nazis, he certainly didn't, but if you had to compare the communists that from his point of view were calling for the end of religion and the Nazis that uh, you know, among two bad choices, you could see why from his point of view, maybe uh, the communists were worse. So does your research show that Pius XII was only a soft anti-Semite? He was not a rabid anti-Semite, but he, uh, not a virulent one, but he accepted the Catholic Church's longstanding demonization of Jews as, as avaricious Christ killers. Is that, is that unfair, or do you think it's true that he was at least accepting of some anti-Semitic ideas, uh, not, not to the extent that he would want to murder them, uh, necessarily, but uh, being against, for instance, he was anti-Zionist because he thought that it would concentrate the uh, greedy Jews in one place, and, you know, <laughs> things, things of that sort. Yeah, well, he did share in the larger anti-Semitic ambience of the church at the time. Now we're talking about the pre-Second Vatican Council church. All this changed dramatically with the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. Which absolved Jews of killing Christ. Right, right. and more generally um, called for recognition of the dignity of other religions. I mean, under Pius XII and his predecessors, interreligious dialogue was, was basically forbidden, not just with Jews, but with Protestants. Uh, so there was a very different attitude of um, toward other religions. Now, the Jews, of course, have been demonized by the church for, for many centuries. And it wasn't just, as some have said, you know, religious demonization, uh, blaming Jews for being somehow collectively responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, who therefore were somehow condemned by God to wander the, the earth. Uh, but Christian publications, Catholic publications, including those overseen by the Vatican itself, were filled with various kinds of demonization of the Jews as wanting to rule the world, uh, to lord it over Christians, to reduce them to slavery, and, and so on. And from the very beginning of modern anti-Semitism, which we generally date to the 1880s, this was uh, the church was heavily involved in all this. 
so the Pope, uh, you know, did come out of this same background. I just, I guess my disagreement w- would be with those who tried to explain his silence during the Holocaust primarily in terms of an anti-Semitism. I think that's not the primary motivation he had there. It was more the, the kind of political reasons we were talking about before. Right. And because he was silent also about other people's oppression by the Nazis too. So he wasn't, certainly wasn't singling Jews out. On the other hand, he seemed to have no qualms about just omitting the history, even as it was unfolding and including after the war was over. Mention, he didn't even want to mention that Jews were killed in Poland, three million of them. He mentioned the Catholics that were oppressed. Right. I mean, this is one of the kind of notable things that even after the war, so there's no longer any kind of pressure he had to worry about along these lines, that he still uh, had very little to say about the fact that two-thirds practically of Europe's Jews had just been exterminated. And so this you know, just was not something he showed much awareness of, much less that the demonization of the Jews by the church uh, would have played a role in making it possible for the Holocaust to happen. Including participation by some uh, Catholic priests in Poland. And uh, you, you cite at least one instance where Catholic priests were uh, helpful in the in the roundup of, of Jews. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be not that common, but of course there, there are individual cases like that. Of course, there are also many priests who tried to save Jews during the Holocaust. So, but I mean, we now know one of the good things about the opening of the, the Vatican archives is we now know the advice the Pope was getting. And one of the things in my uh, my new book is to kind of reveal this, that, for example, his the person he regarded as his major expert on Jewish questions, whom he turned to when he had decisions to make about Jewish issues, uh, that person, Monsignor Delacqua, who later would become cardinal, in fact, cardinal vicar of Rome, was really, I think, uh, uh, pretty clearly a virulent anti-Semite. And the advice he would be giving the Pope uh, was that uh, obviously it wasn't a good thing to be killing Jews, but the Jews needed to be uh, controlled, that Jews shouldn't have the same rights as Christians and, and so forth. So he was surrounded by this ambience as well. Yet some of our listeners may not realize that the word ghetto, you know, is originally the ghettoization of the Jews of uh, Venice, uh, supposedly to keep them safe, but also to keep them separate. You know, behind walls, they were required to to go there at night and not to come out. Right. And then so that began in the early 16th century. Then 1555, the popes in, began to ghettoize all the Jews in the papal states. So they kick the Jews out of all those parts of the Papal States, except for the couple of cities that had ghettos, including Rome, where Jews would be locked in at night, where they were not allowed to practice most professions, where their ability to have any contact with Christians would be limited and so on. And, and this lasted in, in Rome as long as the popes had control over Rome, which they did until 1870. It seems that the main concern of Pius XII was protecting the continued existence of the Roman Catholic Church. That would seem to be his primary motivation, uh, making sure that it survived and making sure that the Vatican City wasn't bombed, if possible, and things of that sort. Right. It seems like everything else seemed to be very much secondary. Yes. Well, you know, as we talk about different stages of the war, one stage that's worth noting is 
uh, you know, Mussolini was overthrown after in the summer of 1943 in July. The um, first the Allies in early part of July land at Sicily and begin their slow march up the Italian peninsula. In the wake of this and the obvious turn of fortunes in the war, the um, king finally decides, King of Italy finally decides to uh, depose Mussolini, to have him arrested and appoint someone else to be uh, head of the government. Uh, and then in the kind of chaotic days that follow, as the Italy tries to get out of the war, uh, the Germans end up in early September of 1943. Uh, flooding the Italian peninsula with their troops and taking over most of Italy, except the southernmost part that the Allies have begun to move into. And so now Rome is occupied by German military, and they would for nine months. Uh, so the Pope was worried about the welfare of the Vatican, Vatican City, uh, along with the church more generally in Rome, uh, with the German military occupation. And so the Pope was eager to maintain good relations with the German military. So this too would be part of his motivation for not wanting to antagonize them. Yeah, he was really being squeezed, it seems to me. I mean, he was trying to protect the Vatican, not just from the Germans, but from the allies as well, who were bombing Italy. And, and we're, we're not expressing any kind of willingness to spare anything if, not, you know, if it was part of a war effort. Well, here, uh, Churchill and FDR Roosevelt had very different views, actually. The bombing campaigns against the cities in Italy had become very early in the war, uh, but Rome had been spared. So uh, the Pope, from the very beginning of the war, had called in the uh, both American and, well, initially the British and French, uh, before the U.S. got involved in the war, uh, their envoys, and uh, you know, beg them to be sure that their governments uh, spared Rome from any bombing attacks. And in fact, they did until the first bombing of Rome would only take place in July of 1943, so well into the war. And even then, of course, the Vatican City itself was spared. But the Pope was, was very, um, very concerned. Churchill didn't have the same attitude that Rose Roosevelt, for one thing, was going to be up for a re-election at various points in this and of course in 1944 and was depending on the catholic vote and so was very uh, concerned about you know, what catholics would think from churchill's point of view the pope hadn't protested when london was bombed and of course the british had been facing the bombing of their cities so he was a lot less sympathetic but uh, it was only in in july of 43 that finally they would uh, agree to uh, the Allies would agree to start bombing Rome. Speaking of Mussolini, I mean, that's not the main subject of your book, but you certainly uh, cover him quite a bit. Uh, I imagine it means that there's new stuff compared to the previous Pulitzer Prize winning book. And you really paint quite a portrait, you know, of, of his kind of psychology and his, his undoing, his, his, uh, the, the heights of his glory in his own mind, and then being reduced to... Uh, being in a kind of virtual prison after the Germans took over Italy and then his ignominious death at the end. Right. Yeah, so this is if yeah, my earlier book about uh, Pius XI and, uh, and Mussolini, which recounts the years from 22 to 39, where a story of Mussolini's uh, strength and kind of rise to power, solidification of power and almost deification in Italy. This book, The Pope at War, is basically the story of his decline. He's, first of all, upset when he's upstaged by his pal Hitler. I mean, he saw himself as the role model for Hitler, which he had been earlier on. 
uh, Hitler in the 1920s before coming to power kept a bust of Mussolini in his office. And so Mussolini thought of himself as the elder statesman, the role model for the young upstart Hitler. But obviously, by the time the war begins in 39, Hitler is not treating him very well from his point of view. He's only letting him know at the last minute, for example, about the um, invasion of Poland or later the uh, in the spring of 1940, the invasion westward of uh, France, Belgium, Holland, and so on. And then also Hitler is going to have to bail him out because the, the Italian military kind of goes from one disaster to the next in the Balkans, in North Africa and elsewhere. And uh, it's only by the Germans flooding in their troops kind of uh, get them out of their troubles. Mussolini was a dictator of a, a non functional army. <laughs> yeah, given, you know, the 20 years of fascism, he boasted about turning the soft Italian people into a hard fascist fighting force. This all was uh, kind of disillusioning for him. Uh, and also actually for the Italians themselves, because um, he had, in fact, won the uh, war he started in Ethiopia in 1935-36. He conquered Ethiopia, proclaims the rebirth after 2,000 years of the Roman Empire. Uh, and then the uh, following year, beginning 36, he, along with Hitler, supports Franco in his revolt against the Spanish government, and that's successful. So the Italians can believe, or at least many of them, the kind of myth of the impregnable strength of the uh, Italian military under fascism. And all the, you see all the goose step marching and so on as a sign of their strength. When it quickly becomes clear that the Italian military is in fact uh, weak, this is a bit of a shock and uh, the beginning in a way of the undoing of Mussolini and his hold over the Italian people. So I'm wondering, uh, with the last uh, segment, if we could talk a bit about the kind of the legacy and the legacy of Pius XII and what's going to be kind of held as true. And Chris, your book is kind of almost relentless in its its unfolding of of really factual, recorded history. And and you don't really get into the um, kind of the moral alternative stance that the Pope might have taken until the very end. And I just want to quote from, this is from the one of the last parts of your book. Uh, but let us for a moment indulge in a bit of conjectural history. What if? What if the Pope had loudly denounced Hitler and Mussolini, excommunicated them, and warned that any Catholic who participated in the extermination of Europe's Jews would be condemned to an eternity of hell's fires? If it is indeed not hard to imagine that in such a case, the Germans occupying Rome would have taken action to muzzle him. But if they were thus forced to do so, it would have come at a considerable cost to their war effort, undermining one of their major propaganda claims. So you really, you kind of broke from your tone at, at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, I should say something you know, about the, the way I wrote, tried to write the book. I mean, as I have with other of my books, I'm trying to interest a broader public who I think is interested in history of World War II, for example, or history of fascism in this history in a serious way. So the, the trick for me is how to write a history that's based on deep archival research with new things to say to colleagues, but write it in a way that is going to interest a, a broad reading public. And so what I hope is people regard it as kind of page turner, which uh, the reader feels they're like a fly on the wall 
uh, of the Vatican or you know the Pope's study even uh, as you know almost day by day basis as World War II is is taking place and at the same time a kind of new history of of the war from an Italian point of view. But uh, yet that to do good history, one doesn't want to be making value judgments. And good history also, I don't think, is a matter of here are the good guys, there are the bad guys. Uh, that's kind of bad history and bad drama, probably. So I did kind of save my, you might say, editorializing or um, drawing some kind of uh, more general conclusions about this to a kind of afterward to the book or a couple of afterwards to the book. And yeah, there, I guess from my point of view, there's a difference when people ask, well, what would have happened if the Pope had spoken out? There are different times uh, in which he could have spoken out on different issues. Uh, for example, the uh, decision of Mussolini to throw Italy into the war in the first place. It, uh, Mussolini doesn't join the war at its beginning and uh, he waits several months the Pope obviously doesn't want Italy to be thrown into the war. So it's not that the Pope in any way was in favor of it. He wasn't, but he never would speak out publicly about it. The Italians were not eager for the most part to go to war on Hitler's side. They just fought a war not that long ago, World War I against the Germans, where half a million had died. And also the Nazi ideology of Aryan supremacy wasn't a, a big sell in Italy. If you were in Naples or Sicily, uh, you didn't really think that meant you. So uh, Mussolini faced a problem, how he was going to motivate the Italians to want to take part in this war. And he was relying in part on the church coming to his aid, which it did. And the Pope uh, not only is the, of course, supreme pontiff of uh, Catholics worldwide, but he was also in effect as Bishop of Rome, the head of the Italian clergy, the Italian church hierarchy. And the Italian church hierarchy and the Italian church organization, from the day Mussolini announced he was joining the, uh, declaring war on Britain and France, uh, that uh, church hierarchy uh, declared its support for the war, for the Axis war, said all good Catholics had to do their uh, responsibility as good Christians and join in the war on the Axis side. So, you know, from my point of view, the Pope does bear responsibility, even though he was projecting an image of neutrality in the war. Um, it wasn't simply a neutrality because he was also responsible for the, the church in, in Italy. If he had said no good Catholic can take part in this Nazi war, I think it would have been a total crisis for, for Mussolini. Uh, so that's you know one element. What effect it would have on Germany, where uh, first of all there were more Protestants than Catholics. Secondly, of course, he was not German; he was Italian. Uh, I think it would have been a little bit different story. But certainly, if one looks at Italy, it's hard to imagine that this wouldn't have had major impact. And one of the, if I can call it a rationalization, uh, one of the ra rationalizations of Pius XII about not taking a stand is that he imagined himself becoming eventually a mediator in a peace treaty, which never happened. Right. He, he um, would proclaim himself or see himself as a potential peacemaker in the war. And this was part of his rationale he gave for uh, not taking sides in the war. In the middle of the war, they, uh, the Vatican uh, produced a kind of slick documentary film, Pastor Angelicus, which is showing a documentary showing the Pope as the great peacetime leader, prophet of peace and so forth. And there was another element here, which is 
uh, particularly the latter, latter part of the war, he didn't want to see Germany totally defeated. Uh, he wanted to bring about a compromise peace, largely because of the fear of communism, if uh, Germany were totally defeated. He did want to play a role of peacemaker, but it was never really in the cards that this would happen. So the, the, with the last segment here of, uh, of this interview, let's talk about the effort, which I imagine is, has stalled to canonize Pius XII. I, I think there was a big effort uh, during the the uh, papacy of Benedict XVI, but it didn't uh, reach all the way to beatification and canonization. Um, do, do you think it's going to happen? And, uh, and, now, and now that the archives are open, this, of course, there's a, not only books like yours and yours, you know, uh, but also the pushback and the, the the kind of apologetics is also in full gear as well. Well, there have been efforts for now for decades to make Pius the Twelfth a saint, and uh, almost came to fruition on the um, in the year 2000. John Paul II um, decided one of the major ceremonies celebrating the second millennium uh, that he was going to make saints of both the hero of the progressives in the church, uh, John the 23rd, who presided over the Second Vatican Council, and Pius the 12th, hero to the conservatives, the last pre-Vatican Second Vatican Council Pope. Uh, but there was enough protest, partly from the Jewish community in Rome, about Pius the 12th and making him a saint that uh, the Pope decided to hold, hold off Pius XII. Uh, Benedict XVI more recently decided to declare Pius XII venerable, which is kind of the next step toward uh, often toward becoming um, beatified and canonized. So the efforts are still there. And in fact, unfortunately, from my point of view, when my book, my book came out around the same time in Italy, the Italian edition as the American edition a few months ago, and the uh, Vatican Daily newspaper devoted a uh, full page to denouncing the book. Two days later, the Daily newspaper of the uh, Italian church hierarchy did the same. And uh, it just did not seem a sign that they're willing to engage in this history. They've got a position uh, that the uh, Pius XII was this courageous leader who saved hundreds of thousands of Jews and so forth. And there's no sign that they're willing to seriously reconsider this narrative. Yeah. And if we could just revisit that, that uh, just a bit about the saving of Jews, there were Jews hidden in convents uh, and churches in Rome. Was there any evidence that Pius XII was encouraging this or dictating this? Because it's not in your book. Um, I mean, w was he somehow looking a blind eye and therefore supporting it passively again? There's a good book about this by Susan Zuccotti called Under His Very Window, referring to the fact that uh, on October 16, 1943, when the Nazis tried to round up all the Jews of Rome and succeeded in gathering over a thousand of them, they held them for two days in a holding facility just outside the Vatican, so hence under the under his very window. So it's, it is true that quite a lot of Jews in, in Rome, if we just look at Rome, were hidden in church institutions as part of a larger effort that church institutions made to protect various kinds of refugees. In fact, most of the people hidden in those convents were Italians, non-Jews, Catholics who were trying to escape roundup for forced labor or for being conscripted into the fascist or, or military and so on. But there's no evidence that the Pope ever ordered it. And it's pretty clear he was uncomfortable with having any uh, such uh, Jewish refugees in Vatican City itself, where there were very few. And those who were there had 
uh, almost entirely kind of stuck in. On the other hand, I, you know, I mentioned the roundup of the Jews, so the, the Pope was then under great pressure to speak out. I mean, he realized, of course, it looked terrible. These uh, initially 1,260 about Jews had been rounded up on September 16, 1943, were being held, about to be deported to what he knew would be their, the death camps. And he has his Secretary of State meet with the German ambassador to the Holy See and, and tell him, look, you know, this really, first of all, the Pope is very upset by this. Secondly, this is making him look bad. Uh, can you do something? And the uh, German ambassador tells him, well, this order came from the very top, namely Hitler. Do you really want me to protest to the uh, German government about the roundup? And the Cardinal Secretary of State says, no, I didn't say that. Just want you to know the Pope's not, not happy about this. So there is no protest and uh, over a thousand Jews are put on a train where they end up a week later at Auschwitz and most are sent directly to the gas chambers. And, and the Pope seemed to make a very big distinction between Jews versus baptized Jews, that he was very interested in, in this sense, he wasn't a racial I mean, if he, even if he was a soft anti-Semite, he wasn't a racial anti-Semite because if a Jew converted to Catholicism, and many did under duress, you know, hoping that would, it would save them, that he was trying to save those Jews. And there was, I guess, a law that it was what, if they were baptized after 1938, it didn't count to the Nazis. Well, you have to realize there was, even before the war, um, Mussolini had introduced so-called racial laws, anti-Semitic laws. Uh, beginning 1938 in um, in Italy, which basically threw most uh, Jews out of work, threw all the Jewish students out of the schools and so on. Uh, so totally impoverished the Jews and isolated them. Uh, so this all preceded German occupation, preceded uh, the war, and had not been opposed for the most part by the church, except that they the church was quite upset because they, from the church point of view, treated baptized Jews as Jews. The Nazis did, yeah. The, well, and the Italians, uh, the Italian racial laws, uh, at least those who, as you say, who had been baptized after the first racial laws were going into effect in the fall of 1938. So now, if we're talking about the, the German roundup, for example, September 16th, and I think you know, this is very uh, significant, that the, the Germans actually rounded up about 1,260 Jews that day from Rome, uh, but they didn't put them all on a train. They waited a couple of days. They checked basically their baptismal credentials and those who could show that they'd been baptized or even the men who could show they were married to uh, Catholic women and uh, made a pledge that their children would be Catholic baptized, uh, they were let go by the Germans. And so uh, although 1,259, I think it was, were rounded up, just over a thousand, about a thousand seventeen, I think, were put on that train. Uh, so the Germans in Italy did not want to antagonize the Pope or the Vatican, and so although they probably did things differently in Germany, in Italy they wanted to be careful uh, to deal differently with the baptized Jews than with uh, the non-baptized. So that was an instance, in a sense, that demonstrates that uh, Pius XII had some power, very limited, but he had some. Yes, that's right. And um, you also have to realize that the Germans were portraying themselves as defenders of, of Christian European civilization. And so, and it, it wasn't the Germans who bombed Rome, of course, it's the Allies who bombed Rome. 
So uh, as the war begins to go badly in Italy, for example, the Italian fascists uh, who were uh, cooperating with the Nazis are you know, filling their propaganda with this notion that the war is being fought uh, by the Jews and the communists against Christian Europe. Uh, so you know, have to have the Pope say this is all you know outrageous and so forth <laughs> would have been difficult for their their propaganda activities. You do mention at one point that the, there was Allied propaganda that the Germans had disregarded the neutrality of the Vatican and had entered the Vatican City and that the Pope had surrendered and was a hostage in German hands. That was a really interesting kind of sidelight uh, <laughs> in the book. Yeah, you still see uh, kind of apologists for the <laughs> Pius XII saying that uh, you know, the Germans uh, were trying to kidnap him and take him to Germany, and he somehow was able to foil their attempts. Um, and what we discover, in fact, is that Allied propaganda was very active in planting this idea, actually broadcasting on radio, that uh, the Germans were planning to kidnap the, the Pope and uh, take him away. That said, actually, the Pope was somewhat nervous about this, that um, in particular, I talk in the book about his having heard secondhand that somebody in the Italian embassy, the German embassy in Rome had joked about turning the Vatican into a museum where you'd uh, get entry by paying, you know, five lira ticket. And uh, he actually asked the German ambassador about this. So he is, he is nervous about these things. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but uh, I really applaud your book, and, and uh, you've certainly added tremendous nuance to this topic. I mean, it's really very complex, and you've amassed uh, so much uh, really direct information about it, not just conjecture, but uh, actual archives, not just at the Vatican, but of also from various countries that had envoys to, to the Vatican. So thank you so much, David Kurtzer, the author of The, the uh, Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini, and Hitler, Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. My pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.